This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Running on bandwidth, airfare, and sticky toffee pudding supplied by Belgrain Press. Recorded live at the Novotel London West, the latest and swankiest venue for Dragon Meat. Oh, we remember it when... When it was a wee small convention that barely fit into its brand new anorak. Depending on what you ask us, stuff we might talk about in this episode include... Tabletop and adventure gaming. Time travel. Tradecraft. Cinema. Occultism. And, of course, food. <laughs> and, of course, as always, we are uh, also brought to you by the kind intervention of our Patreon backers. So if you are a Patreon backer of this show, please stand up and receive applause. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Cannon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something. It's why they're... Protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. So, the show here at Dragon Meat, of course, it has become a tradition, and those of you who follow your traditions may be aware of the fact that we start off all of our live episodes with the Nerd Trope cards, which were provided to us by our uh, friend of the show, Caleb Tate. Uh, and as everyone can see, I'm holding them now in my hands because I did not bring them to London and leave them at Simon's house. No, I have them here where all of you can see them. And so we're going to do a draw of the Nerd Trope cards, so never fear... The first card, the nerd card, is, can the 1970 PGA Tour. The 1970 PGA Tour. And really? The, yes. That's what it is. That <laughs> seems odd that Caleb Tate would have put that into the deck. But that's, it's a very big deck, it's as you can tell. I, I haven't read all the cards. I don't right, know what yeah. it's all in them. And the, uh, the trope card is trench coats. Trench coats. <laughs> trench coats and the 1978... Uh, 70, 70 PGA Tour. Yes. So 1970 would be Arnold Palmer era, right? That's that's he comes in in the late 60s, and then he and uh, Jack Nicholas begin their great rivalry right around then. Maybe Nicholas is a little later than that, early 70s. Anyone a big golf fan? An elderly golf fan? Okay, so yeah. you can say anything, and it will be true. Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus, I put your mind back to the 1970 PGA Tour. All of you remember the drama at that course that they had the drama at. <laughs> where Augusta. Well, no, that's the Masters. The PGA Tour is the whole tour. There was the, 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 it climaxed at the Masters. Would you please stop helping, Steve? <laughs> For one second. Just recede into the background. The great rivalry between legendary Arnold the King Palmer, the man who brought golf to middle America, and Jack Nicklaus, the Golden Bear himself, possibly the greatest athlete in the history of the sport, battling it out for global domination in the 1970 or thereabouts PGA Tour. <laughs> and I know what you're saying, Can you saying, but what can there be secret and conspiratorial about the PGA Tour? Palmer and Nicholas, sure, one of them represents the sun and the, right, and, the, and, the, and the bear king, King Arthur himself, the Golden Bear. Also, possibly some aspect of the Prussian uh, national emblem or the Berlin national emblem, uh, the Berlin city emblem is the bear, right? The bear, Berlin city, the golden bear being the award at the Berlin Film Festival. Obviously, there's some sort of connection going on there. 
But surely Arnold Palmer, nothing can be mysterious and strange about all from the man from Latrobe, Pennsylvania, who invented the perfect alchemical blend of lemonade and iced tea. <laughs> no one somehow had thought of that before Arnold Palmer personally did. Drinks suddenly became available at all bars everywhere. It's one of the few places you go anywhere. You say, I want an Arnold Palmer, they'll recognize it immediately. As though it's spread by some sort of mimetic contamination, as though Arnold Palmer's power to implant things into the mind made us suddenly recognize golf, even though it has been played, I think, going back to the 1100s, 1000s AD, 11th century, I think it's the earliest. Yeah, it, it just started with golf. hitting people with sticks. Right, and then... yes. And then someone said, why not hit a tiny hard-to-hit ball with a stick? It'll make you just as mad. <laughs> and, that was the, and that was the origin. So, yeah, sure, golf was not invented ex nihilo by an alchemist circa 1963 or 62 Kennedy administration, and then mysteriously transmitted back in time to ancient, or, well, not ancient, medieval Scotland. That wouldn't have happened. That's ridiculous talk. That there was some sort of great conflict between Arthur and the Scots. As we all know, of course, it's just a sheer coincidence that of the ten great battles that Arthur is reputed to have fought, five of them are on the Scottish border, which is odd if he's fighting against the Saxons, you'd think. Why is he up there? But No, there, there can't be some sort of endless, timeless, recurring cyclical competition between the Scots and King Arthur, between the Golden Bear and the alchemical balance that is somehow tied up there in the enigmatic Rosalind Chapel, uh, which, as you all know, contains evidence of, uh, of vegetation in the New World before the New World was ever discovered. Again, probably a coincidence, can't possibly relate it, that Arnold Palmer designed golf courses, built the great golf course there at La Trobe that... Um, uh, no one has ever mastered the geometry of. Probably not a sacred geometer in any way. I don't think so. I think it was just golf. That's what I think it was. But others were more suspicious. And of course I speak, as it's 1970, I speak of COINTELPRO, FBI, getting out there trying to get it done. The CIA's uh, Operation Chaos, their Domestic Operations Division, which has not yet been closed down. Church committee hearings aren't for another five years. The CIA is right up in there trying to find out what is, the, uh, what is the source of this turmoil that's roiling America as though something has suddenly been added into the psychogeography of the ruling class that was not there, something that would get them out of the office and becoming angrier and angrier for no good reason? <laughs> it's not that Arnold Palmer is somehow trying to subvert right. the white upper class of America. No. Just because he was born a groundskeeper's son and had to work his way up, why would he want to subvert the American ruling class? Right, and it's not like there's a traditional connection between U.S. presidents and the sport of golf. No, that, not at all. Or that Nixon, who is then president, would not have been a big golfer. He was not a big golfer, in fact. That was not his thing. Eisenhower, giant golfer. Nixon, not so much a golfer. Odd. Odd that there'd be that parallel. That Nixon himself has a little bit of a, I don't know, bearish appearance, a little right. jolly. Oh, well, and, and if, if you're paranoid, you don't like golf because you're wondering what's in those holes. Yes. <laughs> what's, what's, what's behind that bunker? Yeah. That's right. You're in the bunker. You're not trying to get out of the bunker. Yeah. It's the whole other way. So what happens, obviously, despite our knowledge that the sport of golf really exists, was not mimetically instilled by an angry working class alchemist who raised himself to king, again... Became a king? Really? You think? That, probably a coincidence. We don't believe that, but CIA believed it, FBI believed it. That's why they're skulking around in their, as previously adduced, trench coats to attempt to undercut or possibly co-opt the power of golf. Because, again, now, what do we have now? We have now modern presidents, as you say, compulsive golfers, inveterate golfers dragged out, moving along these carefully laid out sacred geometrical patterns, <laughs> engaging in ritualized oath emitting at each of these stages, a blasphemous stations of the cross, perhaps, rather than the <laughs> traditional 14. There are now 18. You're adding four extras, just sliding them in there. Ten stages to the alchemical great work, 22 cards in the tarot. 18, kind of an odd number, just slipping in there. <laughs> so... Probably not something that Arnold Palmer would have attempted to do. Not something that the Golden Bear himself, King Arthur, um, uh, defender of uh, the kingdom, would be attempting to stop, to co-opt, to bring into himself, to devour, and then make whole again the, as, as he dies and resurrects. Um, probably not something that happens. But CIA, FBI, 
in there checking it out, looking into it, trying to figure out how can they, you know, uh, cordon off this, uh, this, this new thing. How can they take control of it? For all we know, the fact that uh, 1970, there's a break-in at the uh, regional uh, FBI headquarters in Michigan, probably doesn't have any connection to the fact that maybe someone was watching golf instead of uh, watching the monitor. Who can say? We know golf was on. We know that, but we don't know whether they were watching golf. We just know that it hadn't existed before. Arnold Palmer made it happen. Someone's watching the monitor. Suddenly, the FBI is broken in. Right, because golf lulls you into a false sense of security with its right. reputation as the most boring televised sport. Right. <laughs> this, of course, is before soccer is televised in America. I know. <laughs> Don't send me hate mail. <laughs> and, and so the break-in at the FBI office in 1970 re reveals the existence of COINTELPRO. It's a strike against golf that predates golf. Uh, the FBI's attempt to counterman golf because... Someone's out there manipulating time, spreading things backwards, spreading knowledge backwards. Probably not Arnold Palmer. Although, again, it's odd that no one had thought to mix iced tea and lemonade half and half until he did. And a Fonzette Orego later in the timeline, kind of a warning sign, saying. Uh, so it's probably just a coincidence that that's when the break-in happens, that J. Edgar Hoover uh, dies also in that same decade. Uh, probably a coincidence the CIA is destroyed by hearings in that same decade. Probably a coincidence that the man who's put in charge of the CIA is... George H.W. Bush, an inveterate golfer, that his son is a golfer, later becomes president. Probably not anything that Arnold Palmer has done to his foes. Question obviously has to be, what did the CIA's and FBI's units do when they foresaw this destruction? When they recognized, uh, looked into the, uh, the, 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 the mirror, looked into the, had the, uh, the oracles read to them, possibly by Nimue, possibly by some other person, that, uh, they, that, that they were going to be destroyed, did they... Uh, create a an insisted moment in time, someplace that it could always be 1970, someplace like, I don't know, the Augusta Country Club, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just asking questions, obviously. More research would have to be done. Yeah. Literally a lot more research. Literally any <laughs> research would have to be done. But I'm willing to bet that if you looked into the membership of the Augusta Country Club, you might find people who are members of the CIA or FBI. And I think on that, we have to leave it an open question. Right. Does golf exist? Are Arnold Palmer's delicious? What's the connection to Berlin? Did you just bring that up and then forget about it? <laughs> <laughs> Who can say? Right. Who but can say? It's clear now why Kalev put the 1970 PGA Tour yes. uh, in the deck. In the deck. So, uh, so well done, Kalev. There you go. So, All right. And this is your nerd trope for uh, Dragon Meat 2016. Do intervals between Ken's time machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty, velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure. Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse... History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers. So this brings us to the traditional rest of our uh, live episodes where uh, you, the studio audience, as it were, ask us questions and we do our best to answer them. So, uh, and we're also going to do our best to repeat the question for our, our listeners at home. We will do the, our best. At yes. That. So when we fail to do that, uh, everyone yell out, repeat the question, so that we remember to repeat the question. So who has the first question, which we will probably remember to repeat? Uh, James. James. Okay. So, so the question is, uh, how much elaboration is too much elaboration, either in uh, adventures or even in setting material? Right. I go by a, or I try to go by a pretty strong rule that is based on pretty strong neuroscience, 
which is that most people can only keep in their head simultaneously between three and seven things. And three things seems a little light to me, and seven gets a little busy. Five is a really good sweet spot. Four and six are fine. So what if I've got anything, whether it be an adventure or even a setting element, a, a scene in one you know location, I try and come up with between three and five things that I can put in there that will immediately get the attention and then leave myself a couple of things to bring up if the players seem really obsessed with the cutlery pattern or something. I can then make that one of the things. And once you've got more than that three to seven, that's too many because people will just lose the plot. And seven, again, is, the, is really the sort of bow wave of this. So if I'm do, you know, just elaborating a setting and it's meant to be relatively self-contained, that's what I do. With something like the Dracula dossier, which is designed to be vociferous, then it's just literally how long can we keep typing this before we have to publish. <laughs> and so when Gareth comes back and says, funny thing about the Albemarle Hotel, Ken, it's mentioned completely in passing in the novel, but it was the headquarters of the Mysterious X Club. And I'm like, we are so on the Mysterious X Club. <laughs> and Gar goes out and finds a million things about the Mysterious X Club, and it turns out that one of their members may or may not have been in contact with the uh, renowned entomologist, I forget his first name, I think it's James Harker, and it's like, well, there you go, we've won. We've won. So since most things can, as you say, be connected to other things, it's relatively easy to fold them back in. If you wind up with a, a, a strand that is threatening to take over, you can usually bend it back around a little bonsai setting material and then bend it back towards one of your big three to five. Again, if, if things with some products, you're not selling just three to five, you're selling a whole conjuries of three to five to sevens. So Dracula dossier, you can really pick any seven of those elements and make those core elements. But we're providing you with, what did it wind up being, 300? <laughs> so that's sort of the, the, the difference between a product for sale that is meant to be used in that way and a product that I design that's more you know, self-contained. Right, and that's the difference between an adventure and a toolkit that enables you, the GM, to create an adventure. Right. And so uh, the Armitage Files, which is the sort of beginning DNA of the much bigger Dracula dossier, uh, says, you know, here's a whole bunch of elements, and then you, as the players decide where they want to go, they'll pick element number one, and then uh, you have elements, uh, you know, two through seven at your disposal, and you can decide where those are as you go along. And so one thing about role-playing writing is that you're, even in a, an adventure, you're overwriting for what will eventually happen in play. Uh, this can be a bit of a drawback sometimes when you get playtest feedbacks. And, well, we didn't even go down the river where you had those encounters. And it's like, well, good, because if you actually did everything in the adventure, that was a horrible adventure. And, and so we can rely on the, the GM and the players with the decisions they make to narrow things down into what will seem like a coherent narrative when they do it. When I set out to create an adventure, I would actually start uh, as my starting point with two things. And then as you go along trying to make those two things work, you will go, okay, well, I need a location where they meet and find out this that gets us from point A to point B. So let's you know, slot in element I, and this is another thing. And then, okay, after that happens, there should be a fight somewhere, and there's, uh, okay, what's the reason for the semi-gratuitous fight? Okay, here's this other element. So that I don't start with those number of uh, elements, but I try to hit that as I go along, because obviously anything that just has two moving parts is you know, scarcely moving at all, but the, the problem with role-playing often is, as you suggest in your question, is sort of eliminating that sense of, of over-elaboration. So if you start with something very simple, it will get complicated when it reaches the players anyway, and they'll ask you questions, you know, well, what's over here? What, you know, what bank is he going to? Well, the scenario writer didn't bother to think of what bank the character goes to, because it's doesn't seem germane, but suddenly in this version of the game it is germane, so you make it up. So of those elements, you can leave a lot blank to decide later what should be slotted in, because no story actually happens in role-playing until everybody gets around uh, the table and, and makes it happen. Uh, and different uh, experiences are tighter than others. Uh, for Gumshoe one-to-one, 
uh, those adventures have to be very, very tightly constructed because the GM has very little time to improvise during play because they have to continually be engaging with the one player. And so with those, I would be much more apt to try and fill in everything with everything meaning also some scenes that definitely won't happen depending on what decisions they make. Uh, whereas, you know, the other end of that spectrum is the Armitage files, where it's just, here's a loosey-goosey bunch of stuff. Make your seven choices as you go. Uh, next question. So the question is, what is our favorite red herring? Red herring that you've either created or encountered. Well, again, um, the red herring is very much in the eye of the beholder. There's a great, uh, I think uh, S. John Ross did it in one of the Star Trek narrator's toolkits where he talks about how you can lay a red herring uh, all you want. You can have, you know, the Klingons are there um, uh, and there's uh, something on the sensors that says that the Klingons have gone to Alpha Centauri and there's a thing that says that they've gone to Lyris 8 and the Klingons are all there and they're all their emitters are pointing at Lyris 8 and they've got a shirt on that says I went to the secret Klingon base on Lyris 8 and all I got was this t-shirt and they can have rocks that come only from Lyris 8 and a radiation signature from Lyris 8 and the player characters are like Alpha Centauri <laughs> and you as the GM say you are so brilliant to see through that masterful Klingon disinformation scheme so a, a red herring is super hard to lay as a designer because again like we talked about in the last question players are crazy <laughs> and, and so I have, I have laid a million things and I don't even lay red herrings anymore in, in uh, my current Unknown Armies game I just have way more things that might be important if the players follow them and again I try and only again keep five to seven of them sort of visible at any time but you can rotate that, that spinner rack and there's five to seven things but it's a big spinner rack by now so, you know, there's things that is like, oh, gosh, I wish that they'd followed up on um, uh, Grenville Dodge uh, and his role as the former head of the Union Intelligence Movement, and now the guy who runs the Union Pacific Railroad and also went over and helped lay out the Trans-Siberian and got into bed with a bunch of German capitalists. Oh, and he also built one of the first railroads down to the Yucatan and then stopped for no reason. There's a lot going on with Grenville Dodge. Right, or but forcing players <laughs> to confront that would be railroading. Exactly. Literally. <laughs> Or Charles Agassiz, the guy who's um, uh, in, in between screwing with uh, Jay Gould, also conducted uh, pioneering deep sea research. And you're like, well, that's an odd set of hobbies to have, is to sail out in your yacht doing deep sea ichthyology and also building railroads to screw with Jay Gould. That seems like two very different sorts of things going on. And so I've introduced, I've put both those guys in, they're historical characters, the players have met them both, and both times I've been, yeah, that's probably messed up, we don't want to do that. So, <laughs> is that a red herring, or is that just player timorousness? I don't know, at, at, at this point, it's hard for me to tell as a GM, and I think it's sort of hard for me to tell as a designer. I recently created a red herring that always works, and I won't tell you what it is, because it's in the uh, introductory adventure in Cthulhu Confidential, the new uh, Gumshoe one-to-one uh, system book. And so you might get to play that and uh, stump and deal with that red herring, or you might get to run it and delight in how that red herring works. Uh, so I'll just say that the, if you actually want the players to deal with a red herring, the way to do it is to have that be the thing that they want to be the truth, or that they, the, the generic genre expectations lead them to assume is the truth. And that's the hook that will draw them toward a red herring. Uh, in general, in more improvised games, uh, as Ken suggested, they will create plenty of red herrings. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, in the more structured environment of one-to-one, uh, -one, it is actually uh, useful to feel like a mystery in order to have some, uh, you know, a, a, a direction that turns out not to be the direction that you, uh, that you go in. But as we've also said previously uh, in our discussions of red herrings, the thing to make them less... Uh, to smell less of herring, as it were, uh, is to have something about them that actually does lead back to where the main thread is. So it's not just a, a total uh, tangent that means nothing, but that pursuing this thing that they think is going on, they actually eventually discover something about what is going on. Uh, next question. Okay, so how would you uh, design an Invasion of Hell role-playing game? So the first thing is, what is the core activity? And we've got one already, invading hell. Yeah. So the thing is, okay, well, what, is the, what do the players do when they invade hell? What sort of rules are we going to have to uh, create around that? 
and how are you going to have a safe haven in hell for once they advance into it a bit? Why doesn't uh, the, all of the demons and devils of hell just overwhelm them each time? And that's sort of a classic problem that you also get, like in the D and D, you know, nine hells campaign, where you're going from one to the others. Well, how are they ever safe? Yeah. So I would start off by determining what means they use to invade hell and what how they can sort of build. Uh, safe territories within hell that aren't immediately uh, claimed. So I'd come up with an answer to that and build out from that answer to the whatever the rest of the, the game was and make that sort of the core of play is, uh, you know, territorial expansion and then uh, territorial solidification. How do you do those things and make them fun? Because it's never fun to have to reinvade the dungeon that you have already trashed. And, and if that is kind of this... It has to be something that recognizes what that problem is and makes it fun to deal with without being just an annoying pain to deal with. Yeah, it's not even fun in a video game where you didn't have to, uh, where you can just actually see the things happen. It's no fun to go through that quest again because you forgot to save or whatever. Um, I actually thought about this question because briefly during the D20 boom, John Zinzer wanted me to do a, a hell campaign to go along with World's Biggest Dungeon and, and the rest of those, this sort of macro campaign. World's Biggest Hell. World's Biggest Hell. <laughs> I think we might have called it Big as Hell. Um, and I, I, I wanted to do sort of a, a omni-hell where there's a lot of ways into hell. And so one of the things that I was going to have that was actually answering that question of, you know, where's the safe spot in hell, was that a elite unit of Spetsnaz, uh, you know, a Russian, and uh, probably some, a bunch of shock guards, like a division of shock guards, um, who had been recruited after they died, you know, they're, they're in hell. And they're like, oh, well, you can come with us because they wanted to get Stalin back from the center of hell. <laughs> and so they'd invaded, but, uh, you know, materialist atheism can only take you so far when you're actually <laughs> in hell. But the sort of the Soviet, you know, base camps that they'd established to, on their way to saving, saving, to rescuing Joseph Stalin from hell would have been these safe spots in hell where you could go. And there would be another path that Christ walked down when he harrowed hell that the demon still can't go in because it's got the holiness of his footprints. So there'd be a number of previous invasions of hell that provide you with that disruptive area that answers the question of why don't the legions of hell just slaughter you? And how do you just stop and go, whoa, seriously, we're in hell. And that sort of notion that, uh, you know, make your hell full of stuff is another important thing to do because... Hell is pretty boring, really. It's like, roll on the random encounter. Oh, demons, yep. we saw that coming. And, oh, I mean, not another lake of monkey vomit. Oh, <laughs> why? Get your boots of monkey vomit repulsion on again. Um, so the, so the, the notion of the, the big challenge for hell is to make it interesting and weird as opposed to just, oh, look at that, devils and demons, everyone armor up, armor of light, blah, 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 already bored now. Oh, these demons have antlers. Wow, that's different. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so you have to sort of make sure that your hell is, is, a, is a jambled up of a bunch of things so that when they come around the corner, it's like, you're in the Chinese hell, and now it's all about filling out forms to figure out where you're supposed to go. <laughs> it's like, what? No, yo, you're in the hell of bureaucracy. Sorry, it's much worse than the other hells. Yeah. So there's like all kinds of other you know, things around the corner that you have to put in, make your hell various. Because um, even Dante... You can tell it's sort of like you know losing it by the end of it. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, you know, uh, he's starting to run out of enemies. He wants to imagine yeah, being exactly, tortured. Right. <laughs> and, and, and Dante, of course, has the great advantage of he can lengthen and shorten the book, depending. But you can't really do that in a dungeon. Oh, there's only one encounter at the bottom, just the Lake of Ice. Sorry, <laughs> you have to fight Judas's big toe. I guess I don't know. <laughs> so it's um, uh, so it's sort of it, 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 that's the other challenge, I guess, is is to make hell interesting, which is odd to say, uh, but there you go. Ken, 
What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Any steak cooking tips? Steak cooking tips. Ron? Uh, during the uh, wintertime, when it's not salubrious uh, to uh, to grill, I actually uh, do them in the oven in a roast pan. Yeah. And that enables you to get a nice juicy steak uh, that is not uh, raw in the middle. And let's not reopen that whole nonsense again. But uh, <laughs> uh, you can get, uh, and you can sear it a bit if you want, but uh, just a, do that. A, a roasted steak yeah. is... Uh, is, is perfectly clear. If, if you have a good meat thermometer, and you shouldn't be roasting meat if you don't have a good meat yes. thermometer, just stop it. Um, you can put the thing in, set the timer to go off when the steak reaches, uh, you know, 130 or so in the, in the middle, and then uh, take it out and you sear it 30 seconds on a side to get that Maillard reaction because you need that, otherwise, you just have a really underdone roast beef, and who the hell wants that? Nobody. So that's some, that, that is a good tip. The other thing about steaks is that a lot of it, depending on where you get your meat, I mean, I live in the Midwest, of course, so my meat is magnificent, but if you don't live there, you may want to have to have sort of a go-to dry rub to put on the outside of the meat to activate some flavor so that you're not just eating mediocre beef, you've got something else going on. And I find that um, you can usually get pretty far with uh, salt, pepper, and uh, garlic. And that will do a lot of, uh, that will counteract, you can buy amazingly cheap steak and still have a perfectly serviceable meal. Uh, the other thing that you can do if you don't can't go outside to grill, if you have a cast iron pan, cast iron on the stove, it's only going to get so hot. But again, with uh, sensible precautions to keep the, the meat juicy, such as letting it rest for 10 minutes or so, so the juices go back into the middle of it. Uh, after you finish cooking it, you can you can make steak in a in a cast iron that will not suffer uh, gratuitously. Or of course, you can cook it in the cast iron in your oven, which is the ideal solution, really. Right. And for a thing, I always say uh, Korean barbecue sauce. Uh, whether you're, if you're doing the oven pan roasted, that uh, is a really great marinade. Yeah. Is that bulgogi or is that something else? It is something else. Okay. All right. It's called Korean barbecue sauce. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, it's uh, ask for it by name. Ask for it by name. Uh, <laughs> It's uh, produced by CG, uh, the CG Corporation, which is also responsible for many of our favorite Korean action movies. All right. Made ac action movies and barbecue you've, you've sauce. You brought me 150% around on this now. There we go. <laughs> okay, next question. So the answer is, did we actually have games in which we were faced with the dilemma of making gnomes cool? And... Uh, I had a, a very cool uh, garden gnome in our long-running drama system campaign, and uh, he was cool mostly because he challenged people's sobriety, and because he had a reason to pop into almost any scene. He was kind of peripatetic. So I guess the real way to make gnomes cool is make it a garden gnome instead of a stupid D&D gnome. Yeah, my, my broader answer was, uh, uh, of course not, gnomes aren't cool. Um, the garden gnomes are, are one cool kind of gnome. Obviously, the other kind of gnome is an earth elemental. Uh, the, that's what uh, uh, Agrippa called uh, earth elementals, was gnomes, and he should know. He made them up. So um, uh, Agrippa and earth elementals were already cool. So I would say, uh, I, I'm sure I've used, uh, I haven't used earth elementals recently, but I'm sure you could. They'd be pretty cool. Um, I've also got a 
angry uh, dwarf, but that's not really the same thing. So, I guess they could in the Rex of the Old ninety seven your uh, Wild West uh, Unknown Armies game. Mm-hmm. They could go down in a mine and find a silver gnome. Right there could be there could be a, a, a Corrigan. The thing about Unknown Armies is that it really really privileges humans as the problem, and so you have to really have something that can be plausibly tied to having been a people. So you can you could in, in theory go down into a mine and find like you know the descendants of people who bred down into being troglodytes or something, and that would sort of be gnomes. But I think that's more fun if they're just chuds. Um, and so I would say that if you're going down into a silver mine and you're looking for a silver gnome or a, or, a, or earth elemental, there has to be a person who is so obsessed with the silver that they're sort of like the genius loci, the haunt of it, and that's how they have you know reformed the silver into a people and are walking around messing with you gnome style. In in that game, of course, if you're playing in a Wild West game, what you need is a um, uh, angry uh, mad scientist, and since uh, Unknown Armies already has the Mechanomancers, I have a Mechanomancer who is uh, a little person and is angry about that fact because I grew up watching Wild Wild West on TV, and Dr. Miguelito Loveless is too cool to be left back in 1967 or whatever that was. So uh, Dr. Cinnamore uh, is now wandering around causing all manner of trouble uh, for the player characters. He recently attempted to destroy the world using the comet, the great comet of 1882, but he failed. <laughs> uh, next question. Okay, so this is a, a some deep time-incorporated continuity yes, we're getting right, into man. here, uh, which is have they ever asked you to undo anything that you've previously done, and what sort of uh, paradoxes do you encounter when you go back and encounter your previous time-traveling uh, can? Um, I'll just say that Time Incorporated is like a lot of employers. They don't know what they want all the time. <laughs> there have been times when it's like, could you get this done by yeah. 1640? And I do. <laughs> and then they're like, no, I'm sorry, we meant the other thing by 1640. Yeah, fine. No, can you go back and do, yeah, it's just no one ever knows. I, I don't know what time change we're looking for, but we'll know it when we see yeah, it. Yeah, right, yeah. If you could just keep doing that. So, yes, the bottom line, yes, it has happened that I've had to uh, go back and, and undo previous changes. And if, uh, you know, it's really not cool to meet up with yourself. Uh, first of all, I'm really annoying. I mean, I don't know if you know that about me. <laughs> but, you know, I'm inside, which is great. But out there, not the ideal spot. When when you when you hang out with two cans yeah. and they start trying to out nerd trope each other, yeah. it, it is a bit much. Yes, out out canning not not ideal. So yeah, you don't want that anyway. And also the paradox, paradox, whatever. Um, but I mean, we solve it the same way you solve everything else, right? Drinking. That's how you do it. So should the two of us wind up, it's like okay, you're supposed to you know get H.P. Lovecraft a typist. You're supposed to get H.P. Lovecraft a girlfriend. What are we going to do? The, the multi-can drinking sessions yeah. always end with, I love us, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love us, too. I love us, too. And then in that spirit of love, in that moment, we figure out what it is we got to do, you know, just work out some timing and whatnot, and then make it happen. And, you know, one of the great things about having a time machine, you can always go back and no right. one ever knows you did that. Right, because it's pretty obvious why you had to take back H.P. Lovecraft's girlfriend. Yeah, for obvious reasons. Yeah. So is is that the answer to the thing you had to undo, or is there another one? I mean, that, that, that's that's one of the main ones. Is um, uh, it, him and Winifred Jackson? I thought maybe if he hooks up with her instead of with uh, uh, Sonia, that might um, uh, pop him out of his shell differently, more uh, uh, more productively. Turns out, and I don't know if you guys have read these, but there's the new letters uh, that just surfaced between Lovecraft and Hazel Heald, uh, who wrote uh, the Curse of Yig and, and a bunch of the other things within the Mount. And in those, she sent him her stories, which were romance stories. And Lovecraft is critiquing the romance stories like he's read a bunch of romances. Like, oh, I think what you need here is a you know tall, dark stranger, blah, 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 or whatever. And he's just like straight up yeah. giving romance criticism. Like, Have you heard of the meat cute, now, said Lovecraft? Now, I don't, I don't know if you guys are like, oh, yeah, that's what we wanted, was a Lovecraft who went and wrote a bunch of romantic fiction with Winifred Jackson, but it turns out it is not what Time Incorporated wanted. Right. <laughs> So back to Sonya we go, despite, you know, them having other compatibility right. issues. And there was that other girlfriend you 
got him, but then she made sure that he secured the copyright to all of his works. Yeah, yeah. And so she had to go. Yeah, he's not dating any lawyers on my watch. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next question. Okay, so, so the question now... A, a veritable susurrus. <laughs> well, uh, first, okay, so the question is, what would Future Ken do to fix 2016, uh, specifically Brexit and the Trump election? Uh, probably also you want to like uh, get Prince some some help. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. You know, let's, let's, Leonard Cohen and Bowie. That's just you yeah, can't fix just, that. I but can't, I can't Prince, you could have intervened. Yeah, Prince. Um, but frankly, I think we know now that we could send you back. You know, we don't have to wait for future Ken. But yeah. uh, there's so many different things that went wrong, Ken. Which would you fix first? Well, I think we all know what the most terrifying, monstrous. Assault against all that is good and decent. I'm going to go back, and we're going to get uh, Lester onto the Houston Astros, so that the Chicago Cubs lose the frickin' World Series <laughs> in 2016. And a little, well, just a little time traveler insight tells me everything's going to be fine after that. <laughs> Next question. So the question is: Have we ever come up with a mechanic that we thought would be great? but have never been able to make it work. And I meant Chris Bryant. I'm sorry, I'm going to get emails, but it's not Lester. Lester's from the fucking Red Sox. So, yeah. And keeping with the, dra the yeah. dragon meat tradition of someone dropping, dropping the F-bomb, bomb. this time it's Ken. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, uh, have we... Uh, I can't think of a thing that... Uh, I mean, there's certainly projects that have been abandoned when it was recognized that maybe this wasn't as exciting as uh, we initially thought it was, but I've never had a mechanic... Because the thing is, if you have a mechanic that doesn't work, you just come up with one that does. And then you put that in there, and nobody knows that anything bad ever happened. Uh, much like interfering with the time stream. Much like. Um, if, yeah, if you have a bad mechanic, you either fix it or junk it. I mean, there are mechanics that are not right for the specific game, where you say, man, I've come up with a really great cooperation mechanic. It's a shame I'm doing a game of survival horror, um, or whatever. Right, and often if you have a mechanic and it's not working, the reason it's not working is because it's the thing you thought of first, and a mechanic that you it exists for its own purposes is stupid and useless, that you're thinking of what's the game dynamic I'm trying to create. Okay, what's the simplest mechanic I can come up with that will serve that game experience. Some people leave out the word simplest, Yeah, but not me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so the, the notion that there is some sort of uh, home for bad mechanics where they go and run and play with the other animals, you know, I just shoot them and you know, bury them in the backyard. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they didn't deserve to live. Yeah. <laughs> The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppetland, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you! So this is the question that is always asked at any uh, gaming Q&A, which is, how can I get my players to like better things than they actually like? <laughs> uh, and uh, the... The, the critique of the question is implicit in the way that I rephrased it. Yeah. Can? Yes. Um, I mean, the, 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 the way that you... There are two possible solutions. One, run better dungeon crawls so that you're not bored. Two, get more friends. <laughs> um, the, the, the part where you just force the dog's face into the dish until he eats the food you put out there is, well, A, it doesn't work, and B, it uh, you know, gets food everywhere. So my argument is that if you have 
six players and four of them are hardcore dungeon crawlers. We're never not doing this. And two of them are, I, you know, whatever. You know, man, I'm just here for the chips. <laughs> do a different game night with those two friends of yours and two other friends and say, let's play this other thing that I would like to play and see if you can get two game groups going. And then once you have two game groups, you can just dump the other one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, find better players is a less crap answer every year yeah. because the hobby is growing so much. Uh, there are new players coming along. Uh, and it's it's easier even for people in relatively isolated places to find people who are interested in gaming because the hobby is growing so much. That's actually the issue because I, I run a club, right? And we've got less G- a lot more players coming in who are sort of D and D dungeon crawling fans, but most of our players, our GMs, myself included, are more story based fans. But we get them in through the door by holding the D and D flag occasionally. Uh huh. It's a false flag numbers. operation. Yes. <laughs> so how can I stop lying to people? Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, talk to your clergyman. That's really not about us. Uh, well, the answer there is to sort of uh, keep an eye on uh, the, the people in your club who are coming up because. You know, uh, lots of us started out doing dungeon crawls and then found other aspects of role playing that we wanted to focus on. And so there are going to be a bunch of them in that, uh, and they may sort of be split up between all the different groups of dungeon crawlers. So keep an eye out, you know, for the person who wants to talk for too long to the person they're buying their sword from and go, oh, well, personal interaction. Have we got a game for you? And then, you know, separate them, you know, uh, look at what people's tastes actually are and see which ones want to do more than just the fighty-fighty stuff, and then kind of, uh, if you have a club, you can have your GM sort of, okay, I'm going to do the sort of recruitment duty of creating the dungeon crawl that has an opportunity for interaction in it. So if they're just perhaps younger players who might go on to like those other things, create those, you know, place those opportunities within a dungeon crawling context and see who bites at them. Or introduce a sort of a story gaming... Uh, technique into a D&D dungeon crawl and see which people went, oh, wait a minute. So, for example, you know, you go on a long, arduous journey to the dungeon, and instead of actually rolling out all the long, arduous journey, you say, okay, each of you, in the course of this long journey, does something amazing to help the rest of the group get out of trouble. What do you do? And then invite them to do just some free-flowing narration. What do you do? What do you do? And some of them will be like, I can't hit this uh, narration that you're asking me to create. Or they will say, I killed a giant. Yeah, I killed a giant. And then you sort of, okay, well, why did you kill the giant? Oh, well, it seemed to have treasure. Well, what kind of treasure did it have? Because my mother never loved me. Right. And then then you get to that, and then you sort of draw them in. So uh, if their tastes are not yet fully formed or might go in another direction, you can just give them little opportunities within the thing that they're familiar with rather than, okay... You're tired of dungeon crawling, so now we're all going to be fairies in a fairy court arguing over the fairy constitution. That's too big a leap. But here's a little story game technique in the middle of... of, And then you get to kill more orcs. Uh, That might help people sort of become the uh, players that your GMs are more primed to run for. And by now, there's enough different flavors of dungeon crawling that you can even begin to vociferate that group. So if you have a 13th Age table, a Pathfinder table, a 5th Edition table, and a Lamentations of the Flame Princess table, that's four very different versions of dungeon crawling. And some of those people may be more amenable to other specific games. So the 13th Age crew may be able to be moved over into other games that are uh, more sort of uh, story-focused uh, and whatnot. The, El- the Lamentations guys might be cthulhu friendly. It's like, this is like uh, death metal, but m- more death than slightly less metal. Yeah, yeah okay. We'd like that. And the, the fifth edition guys might be more interested in sort of the abstract mechanic stuff, maybe heading into the Fate or Savage Worlds type territory. And then the Pathfinder people, you can just like shut the door and <laughs> penny them in and they'll never know. So I think we have time for one more question. So it, it is also a dragon meat tradition to continue to elaborate the nerd trope yes. for the questions. So the question here, Ken, is if Trump is attempting to become the alchemical king, bigly, huge, he's going to be huge, huge in alchemy. Yes. He's got the best alchemy. So classy. So classy. We're going to turn gold into gold. That's how classy yeah. this alchemy is going to be. Uh, so what, what You're going to be sick of sublimation. We're going to sublimate so much. Yeah. 
The chemical wedding. I'm going to marry myself. Marry myself. Uh, and, and you begin to get to what's going to happen. It, it's, it is an alchemical wedding, as you el- elucidate, between uh, the Palmyrian uh, faction and the Niklausian faction that will produce the Rebus and then the Elixir. And the person of the Elixir, I think the uh, methodology that uh, Trump is using is uh, the uh, Crowleyan Moonchild operation. Because if you're thinking, hmm, talks a lot about himself, thinks he's awesome, isn't actually awesome, very, very bad with women, hmm, who match? Ah, Aleister Crowley. Right. <laughs> Best poet. The best poet ever. ever, best ceremonial magician ever. Yeah. Um, so when I think when I got curb stomped by Nazis, it was so, the best curb stomping uh, best ever. Best curb stomping ever. <laughs> totally, totally curb stomped. Um, so the uh, so I think that we're looking at a moonchild situation. And so if he's going to have a moonchild, what we need is a red-headed woman clothed by the sun. We need a little whore Babylon action. So that's what he's looking for. And I think that our real strength here is that maybe. Melania does not want a red-headed whore Babylon to show up. I think that she might have her own opinions about that. Well, and being from Slovenia, you know what that means, Ben and Dante connections, right? So there and, you go. And I, I think the Moonchild is already here. You think it, it's Baron? It's, well, he used to call himself Baron, so he started off with a pseudonym, and then he named his own child after his imaginary version of himself, oh. who would call the press to brag about his sex exploits. Right. And But Melania... It's keeping him in New York, away from Donald. Right. So we're going to be rooting for some very strange people over the next uh, four to eight years. Like, people have to get used to, on, on the left, being really into Lindsey Graham saving their bacon. Which is, which is no picnic on the right, either, I can exactly. tell you that. Uh, and, uh, but I think Melania is, uh, is on Team Save the World. Right. And, yeah. uh, and you know, even if, if Donald collapses... Uh, American democracy and just installs an autocracy, he'll of course put Ivanka in to succeed him. Yeah. And she's a Democrat, so... Yeah, well, so was, so was Donald in 2011, yeah. so that's, that's no guarantee. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I think Barron yeah. is a moonchild and Melania is keeping him right. away from the White House as long as she possibly can. Yeah, so it's already operation. You have merely made manifest that which should be hidden and I hope you're satisfied with yourself. <laughs> Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Hellgrain Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com backslash user backslash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>